Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. We'll be discussing today mainframe computers, dispelling myths, and getting to the facts with my guest, Kevin Studley. You can find reference material related to this show on the North Star Radio Show page of my website. Kevin Studley is an IBM fellow and chief technical officer, officer for IBM Z. Kevin has substantial practical experience as CTO of a broad multi-billion dollar portfolio of software. He holds 39 patents across a range of technical areas. Kevin held previous CTO and technical roles at IBM, including CTO for IBM's Rational Suite, Software Suite. In 2004, he was appointed to the role of IBM Fellow, an executive position and IBM's highest technical designation. He's among the youngest to have achieved this honor in the history of the fellow program. Kevin has a master's degree in electrical engineering and an undergraduate degree in engineering uh, science from University of Toronto. You can reach Kevin at Studley, that's S-T-O-O-D-L-E-Y, at ca.ibm.com. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Well, thanks, Bill. I'm glad to be here. Did I miss anything on the introduction you want to add? Uh, no, other than that, uh, for IBM Z, I'm the CTO of both the software and the hardware, and that's uh, you know quite a substantial change from just a software-only job. That is a, a huge change. You have all the all the gear. Um, yeah. So, um, not all listeners may have a good understanding of of sort of what we're we're stepping into today, as far as the conversation and enter- enterprise computing uh, on this kind of scale, we're discussing it. So, uh, I want to cover some basics. So when most organizations talk about, uh, we still hear the term out there quite a bit, the mainframe computer, um, particularly your customers, obviously, what are they, what are you, what are they generally referring to in your conversations? Uh, generally I would say, you know, we don't use the term mainframe anymore. We have the brand IBM Z and, and Linux one for our Linux only version of it, but, when people talk about the mainframe, I, you know, they're talking about a, a large-scale machine that's running heterogeneous workloads. And by heterogeneous, I mean it's running a variety of different workloads and usually at quite a high utilization. Um, so it's a very efficient machine for running a lot of work. And it harkens back to an age when centralized IT had only you know, those big machines. So typically, mainframe would also refer to a machine with a long history. And that doesn't mean the machine's old. In fact, you know, we just released uh, the latest version of our hardware um, at the end of 2019 um, and and will uh, you know our upcoming cycle we've announced and presented the the newest chip that will go into the next version uh, already at hot chips in, in August so it's very current but it has been um, in existence and serving clients for you know for quite some time since the 60s so when you talk about IBM Z um, and you have conversations with your customer base, how do you classify that type of technology as you're as you're talking about it here? I mean, I think really it's it's a fit for purpose engineered system to run a, a class of very important workloads. There are the workloads that backstop the world's economy. Honestly, um, you know, core banking, core insurance, uh, large government, large retail. 
uh, large automotive or just some of the healthcare, some of the industries where, um, you know, in the, in the back office, you'll see these systems of record and, and uh, transaction systems uh, running on IBM Z computers. And they're, they're the systems that uh, cannot really fail. You know, if you're moving money, either the money moved or it didn't move, but you don't want the message that the money moved and then find that it didn't or, or the reverse, right? So these are business critical operations that this machine is specialized for. Um, and as I say, engineered to that purpose. So it's not for running, you know, the, the productivity apps of your laptop. It wouldn't do well at those, but for these kind of apps, it's specifically designed. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, don't realize that, uh, that, that these uh, types of systems, these large-scale uh, multiprocessing type systems are running out there. And a lot of them are running, we'll talk more about that later, some older systems, but that they're running uh, highly, highly critical, high-speed uh, systems for uh, companies all over the world. I was seeing some stats about, you know, uh, and I'm off the top of my head, 70%. 80% of, of, you know, banks, 90% of large banks, insurance companies around the globe are, are, are using these machines. And, and there's, I talk to lay people once in a while and they say, oh, are they still around? And I say, they're, they're more than around. <laughs> if you did a transaction today, you probably, you know, had one of those machines backing up the work and doing the work, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's 92% of the credit card transactions Right. Uh, touch a mainframe along the way or touch an IBM Z computer actually along the way, not even right. you know, just any, you know, any uh, brand um, similar to the to large banks, large government, large healthcare, all those industries uh, backstopped, you know, by these computers. And, and I don't, I, I probably, uh, we didn't talk too much about this, but um, uh, your, your, that, that, uh, that machine um, and, and that, that series of software or in, and hardware um, essentially pretty much has the market as far as uh, this class of machine. Is that a fair statement? They pretty much dominate the entire market and almost all the entire market? That's, that's true. Um, you know, there have been, I guess, in the past, some, some competitors in, in this mm -hmm. space and there are some, I guess, vestiges of some of those competitors still around, but uh, by far the bulk of this kind of workload, you know, I would say upwards of 95 or 99% of it is running on IBM Z machines. Okay. And you said earlier, you know, responsible for hardware and software. So that answered one of my uh, discussions with points we wanted to have. Uh, you, you offer um, an integrated set of hardware and software. Is that a fair statement? We do, although, you know, it's not that you have to have a true blue, you know, all IBM stack. We, we support a, a rich open ecosystem um, of capabilities and even proprietary ecosystems. So there's a long history of uh, other other vendors and uh, and partners in this space that offer uh, products and functionality built on on top of the platform, and uh, you know also some industry solutions like say core banking, um, where you know uh, ISVs are uh, delivering their software packages uh, on the platform uh, targeted at those industries where we excel. Okay. And I think you hit some of the characteristics, um, uh, you know, uh, large scale, high speed, multi, you know, ru running many different types of, uh, um, of, of environments or parallel jobs. And, uh, but I did want to make sure, are there any other characteristics? Well, we're going to talk in more detail later about this, but there are any other characteristics for this class of, uh, of computing? I would say resiliency and security are two very substantial ones, material ones that, you know, that I didn't mention in that first list. 
Um, so, you know, those are, those are value propositions. You know, this, there's a, there's a organization called iTech um, that, that rates all of the servers on uh, downtime and, and uh, on cyber uh, vulnerabilities. And uh, uh, IBM said, and, and said OS is at the top of that list with, uh, you know, zero reported, uh, you know, downtime. And that's what the Z stands for in our brand is zero downtime. And so from a high availability disaster recovery, um, you know, story, uh, it, it's a very, you know, it, it's again, a part and parcel of the needs of those workloads. You're, you know, you can't have critical functionality in, in these kind of businesses, um, you know, disappear because, I don't know, somebody tripped over a power plug or something like that. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. So, um, you know, it's, we were talking before the show about a, uh, an old, old uh, an, one of the uh, uh, first in a series of IBM mainframes came out of the 60s I worked on. Uh, which which are in in in, uh, in museums, you know, these computers we're talking about are running high level workloads at, at organizations around the globe, um, and uh, and and there's a lot of software running on there that that did come out of of some of the past, uh, right? Is, do you want to comment on that? And you know, again, we can talk about this more later, but they some of the software uh, came from older generations of hardware, right? Yeah, and I think that's one of the original historical value propositions of this platform is it introduced the notion of binary compatibility to the world. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to imagine, you know, today, whenever we buy a computer for our own use, you know, we just expect that the software that we had on the previous computer will, will move over there and, and run, you know, better uh, than right. it ran on the old one. And that just wasn't the case in the 1960s. You know, when you bought a right. new machine, you, you took all of your applications and some of them you might even have had to rewrite if they were an assembler. Mm -hmm. And then you certainly had to recompile them and reinstall um, and, um, and sort of start again from scratch, which was a m massive friction, um, you know, um, for, for changing systems and for upgrading. And uh, so this, this platform really introduced that notion that um, we, we built a strong architectural binary compatibility guarantee that, uh, you know, system N would run system N minus one and minus two workloads, you know, back to the beginning uh, without, without change. Now it might not, you know, we've changed the performance characteristic now, now today, you know, we're so far ahead. I think we were talking uh, uh, via email and it seems like the first machine you work on has a clock rate that was 260,000 times slower than our current clock rate. So, you know, it's almost inconceivable that any apps that were from that era, should they still exist, wouldn't run much faster on this machine. Um, but we do change the performance characteristics from time to time. And mm -hmm. um, we have a very aggressive performance roadmap, but it's always targeted at, you know, the workloads that we're running now for clients and the emerging workloads that we see coming uh, in the future, be they microservices or cloud-based workloads or um, AI, um, you know, different kinds of acceleration that we do put into the hardware uh, to make sure that we're, you know, never behind the curve on what clients want to run on these machines. Yeah, and I definitely dated myself. And true confessions, I did work on mainframe computers in the first major chunk of my career. Let's talk about um, uh, the uh, medium to large organization trends and technologies and, and what your customers are looking for. So uh, what do you see out there as far as large scale type um, or major technology trends and demands from your customer base? Well, I think... You know, I think it's pretty pretty evident that the the sort of computer paradigm of the present is cloud computing, mm -hmm. and so most clients are on some kind of journey uh, towards um, you know a cloud approach to computing. And 
Um, you, you know, I think the naive view is to say, well, cloud or mainframe, like what, or cloud or IBM Z, you know, what would you, what would you do? And we just say cloud and, you know, for us, cloud isn't a place. Cloud is a, an approach, a set of technologies, um, um, a, a ways of working and a set of skills primarily. And so over the last five years, we've been quite aggressive at bringing all of the cloud native capabilities from uh, dev to ops uh, to our platform. So it, it's as easy to write uh, cloud native apps in node.js or any of those uh, born in the cloud kind of languages on our platform as it is anywhere else. And to use the same operational model using perhaps Ansible or, or Kubernetes OpenShift um, to manage those workloads um, across that sort of single control plane. So it's, I think it's a, you know, at the same time, you know, we have the applications that have been the bread and butter, you know, DB2 or database serving applications and transactional applications. And we're continually adding technology to those as well to, um, you know, to keep them relevant to the needs of our clients. So when an example of that would be uh, the addition of the ability to do in-transaction AI inference so that, you know, where you're making decisions, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the industry around data gravity and data being the new sort of petrol, the new natural resource. And there's a, there's a lot of truth to that, certainly. A lot of that data is created on the platform. But um, there's also, I think, an emerging concept of, of transactional gravity, which says, you know, if I'm processing a payment, the best time to figure out the fraud uh, envelope around that, you know, payment is when I'm, when I'm processing, when I'm reconciling that, or at the time when I'm, when the payment's being made. And so that puts a very uh, strong focus on low latency, high bandwidth, you know, high throughput capability, because as you can imagine, think of the world and all of those credit card transactions that are happening. If you want to do fraud in real time, you've got to decide on the spot. Um, and so we've added a whole um, story there around a software enablement, which is completely transparent, you know, use the software packages you're used to, to, to do AI, nothing, you know, bespoke, and then deploy those models trained where, wherever you want uh, onto the platform in transaction. And so, you know, that's a, if you like a marriage of technologies that have been around for some time that are doing acid transactions for those, uh, for those critical businesses, and uh, AI inference that's allowing them to to do you know fraud analysis or anti money laundering or you know know your know your customer or next best action kinds of uh, decisions right in the transaction where that work you know can happen most efficiently. Mm. That's excellent. Um, yeah, I do hear the the this um, you know mainframe or cloud kind of thinking, and um, you know what. <laughs> And, and, and we, we do get a little bit of that, that thinking out there. Um, in, ter in terms of the, uh, you know, cloud computing and uh, <clears throat> so, so what, do you, what, what is your sense from, from customers as to uh, the movement behind that, that trend to cloud computing? I think it comes down, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a question I always uh, challenge clients to ask themselves to understand deeply why they want, you know, it can't be just following a hype, right? It's got to be for business value. I, I rarely find clients these days who do IT for IT's sake. They do it for business value. And that's maybe a little difference between what I would call some of the unicorns in the outside world and, and enterprise clients. So just a little aside, um, you know, quickly before the break, um, when you look at the unicorns, they often talk about activity. So we do a, we do a release into production every eighth of a second, which is a staggering number. 
Um, but you ask, you got to ask yourself, what's the business value of that? And I'm not saying there isn't one, but it's not what they lead with. In the enterprise, you'll almost invariably find we did this work around DevOps and continuous integration around using cloud approaches for agility because we wanted to shorten our time from ideation to um, code in production implementing that idea. Or we wanted to increase our automated test coverage so that we could do uh, much better shift left testing and identify you know, problems earlier in the development process. And they can, they can point exactly to the value that that brings their business. So cloud computing to me has to be done in the context of what's the value. So the value to me is elimination of need on uh, for bespoke skills. It's, mm -hmm. it's agility. It's the ability to move quickly. It's consumption models, perhaps OpEx versus CapEx. So all of these elements come into the decision to do uh, to do cloud and and that may involve may may imply public cloud is the right place to do some of that work um you know we certainly put forward a hybrid cloud approach that's that's the ibm perspective on this is that uh, both are valid and it's the technology that's common okay and uh you know we're we'll we'll we're going to get a chance to dig into some more uh details on the cloud um, and I, I do want to talk about, uh, and, and I was really glad to hear, and, and you mentioned, and sometimes it gets lost in things, that you do up continuously upgrade and improve those, those existing uh, environments that, that have, have been out there. Uh, we will take a short break and come back and talk, talk some more about this. Uh, you're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing mainframe computers, dispelling myths, and getting to the facts with my guest, Kevin Studley, and you can contact uh, Kevin at Studley, S-T-O-O-D-L-E-Y at ca.ibm.com, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, 
please send an email to WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn by email or on my website. We're discussing mainframe computers, dispelling myths, getting to the facts with my guest, Kevin Studley. Uh, before we uh, before break, Kevin, you mentioned uh, some of the um, systems that have been out there a while and, and can clearly still run on your latest uh, platform, hardware and software, uh, and, and also that you're continuing to support those systems and, and not just support them, but also to provide um, really the best, uh, the best options for people who are running those systems. Uh, there's a lot of those systems out there. You alluded to some of this earlier in terms of the, for example, the number of financial transactions processed globally by these systems. Uh, I want to talk about some of those systems and, and how your customers view some of those systems and, and uh, you know, what, what if, what their thoughts or concerns or or objectives are with those systems. Can, can you comment on that? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, I, I hope we didn't leave the impression, you know, that these systems have been sort of written in the 60s or 70s or some some bygone era and uh, been sitting idle and, and mm-hmm. unmaintained. You know, that would that would be rather like, a you know, buying a car in the in the 70s and never putting oil in it. <laughs> Until now, you know, uh, very unlikely that it would that it would still work. So these systems have certainly been maintained and upgraded, mm-hmm. and along the way, you know, things of like high availability and disaster recovery, and increasingly sophisticated disaster recovery solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, using multi regions, you know, perhaps hundreds or more kilometers apart to sort of protect against all kinds of you know possible eventualities. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's modernization, I guess, in place that's been going on. There's also, of course, you know, um, adherence to regulatory environments, which have been changing quite a bit. So, you know, the reality is for most clients, these these applications, the bulk of them, the critical ones, have been under uh, active maintenance and, uh, you know, hygiene, if you like, you know, for, for years and years and years. And of course, um, I would say there's a pressure on, on skills in the industry. I think during the pandemic, you saw some discussion about, you know, who knows how to program COBOL because we need some COBOL programmers. And uh, I think that was, uh, um, that was a little unfair to, to put COBOL uh, on the spot there. Uh, COBOL is a, a, an older language, certainly, and it's not taught in the, in the uh, cur- uh, curricula anymore of, of most universities, although we've got over 600 institutions that will teach you IBM Z uh, skills around the world. Uh, in our academic initiative. And you certainly can take online COBOL courses as well as uh, ones in uh, a variety of uh, levels of institute, you know, higher level, uh, higher learning institutions. Um, I think the real problem there was that some applications, you know, were not anticipating some of the load they got during pandemic and were not, mm-hmm. um, were not really kept up. So it's almost like it's a placeholder for uh, the car without the oil in it. And uh, I think if you're a, if you graduate with a programming background, you should expect in your career to come across a language that was invented after you were educated. Uh, those those languages are emerging at a furious pace, actually, in the broader world, especially in the last ten years, I would say. And you can also expect to have to learn a language that uh, went out of uh, the curriculum before you started your education. And COBOL is only one example of that, and it is actually a very straightforward language uh, for most people to learn. It doesn't have some exotic programming paradigm that it instantiates. So, you know, to some degree, I think this was a placeholder for, there are, there are some clients that um, I guess it's been tempting to use that binary compatibility guarantee, 
um, as a reason not to invest in in their infrastructure and the hygiene of their applications. And when that happens, uh, that becomes, I guess, the negative connotation of legacy. Um, mind you, you know, kind of similar to the imperfect analogy of of uh, buying a car and not putting oil in it. You could buy a completely new car and wreck it by not putting, almost well, it's an electric mm-hmm. car, but you know, by not putting oil in it um, as well, right? So you, you, what what really I think it's coming down to is the industries at large are coming to grips with what it takes to have a sustained hygiene around applications that have um, an enduring value to them. We don't run out of plumbers and electricians and uh uh, you know, phys- uh, uh, and you know, civil engineers and all you know, doctors and so on and so forth, because society has figured out how to have a sustained model for creating those skills. But I don't think when any of these applications were started and we started embarked on this mission to automate the the back office uh, of large corporations, that people thought that, that we sort of realized the lifespan of what they were mm. putting in place. And so I think they're just kind of coming to grips with what does it take to have a sustained capability to support this business functionality, which is now almost completely IT based. Right. And we're learning, it's getting, it's getting a lot better. But part of that is, um, you know, getting to a hygiene investment on the demographics of your skills, and the um, technology approaches that you take, um, and just investing constantly at a slow burn, rather than going through cycles of uh, feast or famine. Yeah, and I, I do want to comment on some of the um, migrations I've seen gone wrong. Um, yeah. there, there, and there's a variations on these. There's, there's the, um, you know, I'm going to rewrite these things and try, to, and try to put them into a new platform for whatever reason they're doing that. Um, and there, there, are, there are obviously some reasons. Um, but also, uh, there, there's this concept out there that, that – um, some people may be familiar with, it's called lift and shift, which is sort of picking things up and emulating uh, uh, what the mainframe was doing with those systems on a, uh, a non-mainframe platform. Have you, uh, have you seen any, any, any of that out there, that, that type of approach? There's, there's a lot of that approach being talked about, uh, mm-hmm. and there's the whole gamut. Like, like you say, I would say uh, any of these migration projects, um, typically due to the scope of them, um, is is fraught with peril. I, I would say they're the projects, the IT projects, especially the larger ones, which have the um, worst sort of properties of going over budget, uh, over time, and under delivering on functionality. And the the sort of the worst cases when they they outright fail. Um, you know, usually after about five years, the business realizes this is never going to actually work out. And unfortunately, they've they've used the excuse or the rationale, if you like, that they're moving somewhere else to not invest in the existing system. And now they find themselves in a very tough spot. So it's, it's a very challenging situation. Now, as we've been speaking about, the platform has been around for an awfully long time. And so upon a day, you know, in the 1970s or earlier, it was your only computing platform. So if you wanted to do some computing, that was where you put it. And that didn't mean that necessarily the job you were doing required all those qualities of service that are the bread and butter of the current IBM Z platform around resiliency, security, data serving scale, um, you know, uh, throughput and latency, all these kind of value propositions. Maybe it's just a situational application that you like in your business, but it's not really as critical. So, so when those applications, um, uh, you know, are the subject of one of these moves, usually if, unless they're tied 
very tightly into the data that's on the platform, um, it's possible to move them. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people conclude from that that it's possible to move all these other applications as well, which really are tied to the deep value proposition and, and uh, behavior and practices on the machine. And so those ones, you know, often, often do fail. Um, you know, we're much more interested, I think, and our clients have seen success around a modernization in place approach. Mm. So, you know, by all means use loosely coupled architectures instead of monoliths, by all means use node.js or Java or Go or um, Python, you know, to solve your mm -hmm. problems instead of COBOL. But remember that the underlying workload very likely has the same kind of characteristics. You still need it to be highly available. You still need it to be uh, elastic and scale and responsive and have very reliable response times and so on and so forth. And when those uh, value propositions remain in place, then the platform remains a very good place to do that work, regardless of the, you know, underlying implementation technology. Um, and then the sort of parallel transformation I see is really around building a DevOps capability, a DevSecOps capability mm -hmm. on the platform. And that's the other very common transformation we see our clients going through, going from a legacy, more legacy set of tools uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, very modern approaches uh, to doing development and operations. Good. Um, I, I have seen more than my share of these uh, migrations, whatever technique is used, and some are some are worse than others, but but you're right about the uh, statistics in terms of failures and and um, uh, you're just falling short of everything that they had intended. Uh, the, the the outright failures are are pretty clear, and 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 uh, the fact that they've been ignoring their current current base of installed applications for five years is 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 always a problem. Um, in terms of the the organizations that have and and you've seen you know more than your share of uh, you know these distributed environments when they do move off uh, even in small part maybe in larger part uh, of of a mainframe type of environment centralized environment um, there you're you're starting to run into some areas where there's maybe unforeseen uh, factors uh, you talked about risks uh, reliability some security issues. Um, so, what what is your thinking about so some of the organizations maybe you've seen where either in in, in part or maybe in large part have moved uh, off of what would be considered a a pretty reliable uh, sort of centralized or not centralized but mainframe more mainframe like environment into some of these distributed environments? What are some of the things you see that they're running into that are issues? I mean, there are, there are a wide variety. Um, you know, part of what it what happens is that you inevitably go backwards on the maturity curve of your implementation. You're mm. taking a lot of mature business logic um, that hopefully isn't isn't broken. If it's broken, that's an, right. that's another discussion. But and rewriting it from scratch, and inevitably, no matter how good your testing is, you're going backwards on your reliability. So that's one problem. The other is that um, you've taken a bunch of functionality that's co-located on. Uh, um, a, a large single machine with a lot of optimization towards that workload and putting it on a larger number of machines that are not so optimized for it and which can really only run a single workload. And so this introduces all kinds of concerns around network latencies, around management of server sprawl um, and, and you know, scope of replication for HA and DR purposes. Um, if you start going to more um, eventual consistency kind of architectures, which means that you don't really have a single source of truth about your backend data source. You know, it, 
things can sort of be out of date for a period of time. They eventually get figured out. That's why the eventual consistency. Then you, you're sort of forced in the application tier to write what's called compensation logic or compensating transactions. And this introduces a tremendous amount of complexity, which sort of starts out um, seeming manageable. And then just over time, I think the, um, the full complexity of it unfolds and, and can be you know, very daunting. Um, you know, there's sort of a, a story of, of a technology called Spanner that, uh, that Google created, which is actually a very impressive um, worldwide um, you know, database, a data serving technology. But they started out with the belief that they could create this based on these eventual consistency architectures. And slowly over the next 10 years, um, they basically recreated um, a relational database acid transaction system. And they, you know, at, at every turn where they thought they could do something simpler, they basically realized they couldn't and had to, so they ended up kind of on a different technology base, basically back at the at, at step one with the, the data serving sysplex kind of um, equivalency, if you like. I'm glad you brought up data. I think a lot of people don't realize the, uh, um, you know, the, your, your databases and, and particularly, you know, the, the, the latest sort of incarnations of those uh, the, the, the speed and the degree of integration that they can process that. Can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they've, they've really has been architected for those kind of workloads mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, all the sort of two phase commit and, and these capabilities that allow you to really deal with a world that, um, you either do something or you don't do something, but you can't report that you did it if you really didn't or, or vice versa, you know, that's kind of my, I guess, um, short form for the, all the technical terminology around it and running at the scale. And it's even sometimes the consistency of response time. Um, you know, we often find when we're comparing to other systems that, you know, an outlier response time might be something like 10 times the mean. And on our system, it's much more likely to be under two times the mean. Mm. And so that's, that goes back to that, you know, engineering for a certain set of characteristics, we call them SLA, service level agreements or non-functional requirements right. It are extremely important to the actual business context, but which don't really manifest themselves in the code per se. Mm. And so, or in the application design. So it's right. like the deployment architecture, manif you know, requires you to be up all the time. It requires you to be able to, you know, have either a hot standby or an active second or third site that's mm. completely up to date that can take over if if there's a problem with one site. And it might not be a problem with the site itself, but it mm. might be power to the site. It might be network connectivity. You know, if your ISP goes down into the into that machine, you know, it's um, you can come up on the other machine and you're and you're fine, right? So um, th these are very challenging um, technologies to get right, and uh, we've spent a lot of time yeah. doing just that and proving along with our clients. Um, that we have done. I want to talk about some of the um, IBM's current offerings uh, and and some of the highlights of IBM Z. Um, you know, we we talked about upward compatibility and binary compatibility, and I think that that's fantastic. We uh, you did talk about, and, and maybe you can you you can just give us a little more that IBM Z uh, you can set up and run a cloud environment on that environment, right? Yeah, you can you can set up say OpenShift mm -hmm. uh, on the Linux. So we haven't talked very much about you know, running uh, the Linux operating system ah, on yes. this machine. Um, and we also have a, a different brand called Linux One, which is a mm -hmm. Linux only 
um, machine. It's the same hardware, basically, but uh, you're running Linux on it. And that allows us to um, really bring that open ecosystem of capabilities and all those same technologies that you, you see in the broader distributed world, but bring them to a platform uh, which has the resiliency and the security, uh, the data serving scale, and so on. Again, for that class of workloads that it's engineered, right. uh, you know, for which it's engineered, it, it's 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 unbeatable. Yeah, I think I think that's really something that that people are not clear on and not aware of, and and that that's a I think some huge messaging. Um, I, I did want to talk. You know, you mentioned reliability here before we go into the second break. Um, you, you you're putting a cloud environment on a very highly reliable uh, environment, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a, a ZOS data sharing Sysplex itself is seven nines of availability and you won't mm -hmm. see any hyperscaler claiming seven nines. And we can validate that with, uh, with the external data. And of course, we have the data from our systems. Mm -hmm. You know, as we found single points of failure, we've eliminated them. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, it's it's really at the top of the heap there. As I said, ITIC has rated both IBM Z and uh, Linux One uh, in that realm of, you know, never uh, any kind of uh, substantive downtime due to a hardware uh, failure. Or I read recently um, that uh, it can withstand an earthquake of up to a certain amount. Have you, have you eight, heard any of that? Uh, uh, eight, eight on the Richter scale. If it's eight cabled, on a Richter scale. If it's cable to fall over, it can fall over and keep running. So it can <laughs> topple over as long as the cables won't fall out. Wow. Um, and, we, and we do test that. It's not just, you know, we, we design to that yeah. um, as well as like cosmic radiation uh, bombardment. So, you know, we do substantial error correction of uh, bit flips that happen. And, and there are some very famous stories in the industry of, of bit flips that have had, you know, changed the course of elections or, uh, mm. you know, had other unforeseen and usually undesirable consequences. Well, the election, I guess, I'm not sure, you know, one, one side won and one side didn't. But. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back to that after the next break. Uh, you're listening to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing mainframe computers, dispelling myths, and getting to the facts with my guest, Kevin Studley. Uh, you can contact him via email at studley at ca.ibm.com. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs, and you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Looking to enhance your business architecture skills, become a certified business architect, or align your team to a common approach? 
Check out Business Architecture Associates. Industry pioneers and co-founders Wendy Keene and William Ulrich have trained thousands of business professionals, turning beginners into practitioners and practitioners into experts. BAA offers in-house and public business architecture training for individuals and organizations with more than 20 courses to choose from, including the Business Architecture Bootcamp, popular mini-course series, and custom workshops. BAA can create a learning path for you and your organization. Why learn from the rest when you can learn from the best? Check out BAA's course offerings at businessarchitectureassociates.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMULRIC at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMULRIC at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn, email, or my website. We're discussing mainframe computers, dispelling myths, getting to the facts with my guest, Kevin Studley from IBM. Uh, Kevin, we were sort of going down a, a list of items of the, of the current um, uh, offering you've got with IBM Z. And uh, th- there's a, one factor, we talked about reliability and, and, and some other elements, but in terms of the, uh, uh, I want to talk about service first. You brought that up at break. So um, a lot of computers, uh, when you go out to service them, you want to upgrade them, you have to shut down the environment. I can't tell you how many times I've run into that with, with situations. Uh, but, but you were talking about being able to service uh, the platform without, without even stopping. It just keeps running. Right. So that's that's kind of a core engineering principle of the platform that we've developed mm-hmm. over time. And so you can, um, first of all, it does some things automatically. If it, if it detects too many bit errors in a single core, it will spare it out without losing any data or you know, breaking the workload. It will spare it out automatically to a, a spare core that, that there's a set of spare cores, dark capacity, mm-hmm. we call it, on the machine. So it'll, it'll just automatically do that. And then it will phone home and, and tell the organization, uh, there's a bad core on this machine uh, that I've had to spare out. Mm. So, you know, it needs service. Um, and so it, it can do that some number of times, obviously, before it runs out of these mm-hmm. dark cores. So obviously we have to get the service going at that point. But when the service comes, we don't have to take down the machine. We can change cores, we can change memory, uh, we can change drawers, as long as you have more than one drawer on the machine, which is a mm. whole, I guess, um, large amount of compute and memory uh, arranged in that single drawer. And we can do that all non-disruptively by moving the, you know, by automatically moving the workload to, to be handled by the rest of the, the machine, if you like, uh, while those things are, are being serviced. You can service an oscillator, um, you know, because there are multiple of them, you know, while, while the machine keeps running. So this notion of non-disruptive service have to be done by skilled personnel, obviously, um, but we have a whole logistics around the world uh, to support our clients in, in kind of any geography uh, to be able to do this kind of service, be it on a Linux machine or, or a ZOS machine. Nice. Um, so uh, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was this, this cost of ownership. There, there seems to be, um, you know, one of the things you hear with, with oh, we need to migrate uh, off of this environment is, is so we can reduce costs uh, can you comment on this, this overall, and, and which includes, by the way, running, running these systems 
uh, over time, uh, th- there's there's some comparable costs. So that the in terms of the total cost of ownership of of some of these systems uh, that are out there, these distributed environments versus the platforms we're talking about here with IBM. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated topic, obviously. But when we what we find almost invariably is if you're running the kind of workloads uh, that our machines are designed for, and you're running them at scale, meaning it's not something you know, that would fit on a, on a laptop or a one U, you know, mm-hmm. uh, X86 server, um, then, then this system is extremely cost effective, especially over a three year period. And in fact, what we're finding in clients, you know, you, you talked about clients uh, moving workloads, you know, to the cloud, we're actually seeing a lot of the, the opposite effect where clients are taking adjacent distributed workloads that are interacting with their uh, IBM Z platform and moving them to um, capacity on the on the IBM Z platform. Sometimes dark capacity that they just turn on with a with a microcode switch. You know nobody ever has to enter your data center, um, and they're able to move those workloads now. Much lower latency. Um, they're now into the HR uh, HA and DR scope of the of the platform. So you know a lot of uh, improvements there. And then some people are simply doing this consolidation of workload. Um, just to, 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 for the purposes of saving money on uh, per core licensing, uh, on management sprawl and complexity, um, on on uh, on energy uh, and floor space. So it's a you know the sort of reverse, almost repatriation trend uh, is also occurring, um, and and the pandemic actually has caused that to uh, to increase. I would say where um, you can actually do this in a non-disruptive fashion without having, you know people from outside your company have to enter your data center. Yeah, you had the, both of those are incredible that, that you can you can upgrade capacity without without any people. Uh, you can just flip that and that people are moving, uh, you know, to, to run their clouds on, on your Z environment uh, because of, uh, you know, the, not just the performance, but also some of the cost factors involved. Uh, which, which I, I think is is incredible. So you're seeing demand uh, increase, or or it's certainly significant demand ongoing uh, for for the series. Absolutely. I mean, the, the in terms of installed capacity, it's grown mm-hmm. uh, over 3.5 times over the past 10 years. Okay. So okay. that's that, quite a substantial yeah. CAGR there. That is something people don't don't quite understand. Uh, I, I want to talk about energy demands. Uh, you, you know, some of the stories I've read is that there's server farms out there, for example, running cryptocurrency that are using more energy than uh, than than small nations. Uh, can can you talk about some uh, some power benefits of of IBM Z? Sure. I mean, I, I don't know if I would suggest you know mining as a as an activity to do on the platform, but. Um, <laughs> But honestly, um, it, it is a very strong story and it's become increasingly relevant. I think it's always been true that the platform, because it runs at a very high utilization and runs a large number of workloads, um, that it's capable of tremendous energy efficiency. If you're, if you're talking about equivalent workloads, we estimate and we've done some measurements in the lab you know, of actual drawn power, not any paper calculations. Uh, that indicate if you're if you're trying to run the same workload on an x86 based infrastructure, um, you're looking at about 60% less power on the IBM Z side to run okay. the workload there, and uh, and the and the floor space savings are are even larger, you know, just because the machine has a, right. a smaller footprint when it's consolidating all of that work. Um, so I think that's that's something that increasingly with clients making large uh, carbon neutral. Um, goal statements and perhaps for some of them, some industries, depending, you know, in a manufacturing industry, maybe not so so much, but in a lot of other kinds of industries, the IT infrastructure would be a big part of their 
um, you know, their, their carbon um, footprint. And so being able to reduce that by, you know, 50-ish, 60-ish percent um, is quite a good step. And it's a concrete step that they can take towards realizing those goals without buying carbon credits, you know, without, um, you know, trying to change their energy provider necessarily. Um, so that, that's been, been one, I think, that's been a, an important one. So uh, organizations thinking about uh, sustainability and, and, and environmental, uh, uh, you know, meeting environmental goals, uh, you know, they should think about the IBM Z uh, as, as one of their options for that to be able to do that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And they, um, and they are, I, I also you know, I have some examples. Yeah. Even, you know, and they, they are. are. And that is oh, happening. Yeah. The Dutch tax office, for example, mm-hmm. recently announced that they, they built a whole new workload on the platform specifically because of its of its green nature. And we know of others uh, that are that are not public references that are exactly pursuing it for for those reasons. Either mm-hmm. they can't get more data center space, they can't get more data energy, uh, data center energy. If you're in a in a top tier city in Asia, typically um, your data center is not allowed to purchase more energy. So if you want to do something different, you have to stop doing something else if you're at the limit. And so this has been a way that they've given themselves headroom to do more stuff by in, installing Linux One machines, for example. Interesting. Um, yes, and, and you, you did indicate, and you can run Linux on there, and you've got your own Linux One uh, environment. Uh, in terms of integration, you have these older systems running. Uh, they're going to continue running. Uh, they, they sort of predated a lot of sort of what's out there today as far as, you know, new technology, uh, but they can run there. And then you have the, uh, you know, these newer modern applications uh, with, with a lot, use, use modern software, a lot of modern environments. Uh, a degree, you have a degree of inter- integration um, and interoperability that you can provide by running on this on, on a single platform. Yeah, so, I mean, the way those, those environments can, can interoperate is... Um, it's actually quite rich, you know, so they can interoperate via RESTful interface and, and uh, JSON, which is the sort of lingua franca of the internet or of the web, right. uh, the cloud, um, you know, they can, they can do so in other different ways. Um, there's certainly, you know, virtualization and aggregation technologies that allow you to do, you know, sort of federated data um, approaches and so on and so forth, similar to, you know, what you see in the AI space. So it, it's, it's a very rich story on that integration and you know i really wouldn't characterize them you know necessarily it's very rarely that we see some um, long-running so-called legacy application uh, that hasn't been you know modernized in some respect in some way so you know they may be um, running inside one of our transaction monitors and there may be a lot of COBOL transactions in there, but now there may be also Java transactions in there as well. And so as they do more, you know, functionality and upgrades, more of the code becomes Java running in that environment um, as opposed to, to COBOL. So for the most part, I would say, um, you know, certainly there are exceptions, but for the most part, um, they, they become a mix. Um, and so they're, they're using all of the modern uh, methodologies of, of interacting. Okay. Uh, so when, if you talk to business leaders, and, and I know you do, um, that, are, that are looking at their uh, sort of mid to long-term investment strategy in, in computing, uh, you know, uh, uh, we've talked about a lot of the benefits of, of the Z environment today. Uh, um, is, that, is that something that, uh, that business leaders are, are understanding or is there, there more that you want to be able to educate them on? I mean, what, what, are, what's, what are really the kinds of things that you want to want to communicate to them? 
I think increasingly they are, and and partially that's because we've changed our approach to to move away from quoting feeds and speeds. I mean, it's easy for me to sort of drop into techno babble, um, you know, because that's sort of the, the the world I live in. But but really, like I like I mentioned before, our, our clients do IT for business value, and so we've really gotten I think a lot more focused on talking about the business value. So when we talked about pervasive encryption with one of our earlier models. Um, about encrypting the data at multiple levels and to not classify data into the stuff that needs to be encrypted versus the stuff that doesn't, which as you can imagine, is a very you know fraught with uh, human error kind of uh, process. And then you have to explain it all to an auditor and explain to the auditor, yes, and I found all the copies that we've made of this really sensitive data and encrypted them. How do you prove that, right? It's like proving a negative. So we say, don't even have that conversation. Encrypt it all multiple times, you know, on the disk, in mm-hmm. flight, in the data sets, within the database, you know, if you want at the application layer um, and, and so on and so forth. And that way, you know, you're never really hand-waving about that stuff. So that kind of gave the value around cyber threat secure and, and uh, just in general, those kind of um, concerns of the business around the safety mm-hmm. of, their, of their systems. And similarly around, you know, uptime, resiliency, these green messages, they're not fundamentally technology messages. They're business value messages. The value of consolidation is all in the money you save. Um, You know, so yeah, there's some technical work behind there. And we did a lot of very deep engineering of the system to make it good for those things. But the value is in the business impact it can have for our clients. So I think we're getting a lot better at being able to describe that. And we'll just, it's the same with AI. It's not about doing AI for AI sake or because it's a cool new technology. It's because you can save one, one um, client of ours recently reported this by, by being able to do in transaction inference on every transaction rather than on a select mm-hmm. few where they had enough time, they were able to save over $20 million in the first year from just fraud, you know, which we know is sort of a wow. malaise on the whole financial industry where people are just sort of losing mm-hmm. money all the time due to fraud. And there's, you know, the, the more they can put in front of avoiding that scenario, the the better, you know, it's just free money, if you like. So the business value, that return on investment is really easy to uh, to justify because the money's there. Great messaging uh, that we're going to have to close on today. I really want to thank you. Uh, I think you enlightened us about a whole lot of things, uh, Kevin. really appreciated it. Uh, my guest today was Kevin Studley of, of IBM, uh, CTO and fellow. Uh, We've been discussing mainframe computers, dispelling myths, and getting to the facts. You can reach him at studley at ca.ibm.com. And uh, this has been um, uh, the North Star. Uh, My topic next week will be the seven deadly patterns leading to strategy execution uh, blues. And um, I'm going to be on there without a guest. And I will uh, uh, share some insights gleaned over my conversations over the last four months, some interesting things that have come up. Uh, You've been listening to the North Star. I do want to remind everybody there's resources on the website page of my uh, website, tacticalstrategygroup.com, specifically some links uh, to some of what IBM has in this area. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate being invited on the North Star. It was great. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star. 
Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then. 